This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Life has changed since our last Zoomer Week, and some of those changes may be permanent. I talked to futurist Richard Wurzel. And with another look at what is coming next, pollster Daryl Bricker distills the growing trends based on demographics, and Zoomers are at the center. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Three Chinese centenarians have beaten the coronavirus. A 103-year-old woman has become the oldest to recover after getting treatment for just six days at a hospital in Wuhan, the city at the center of the outbreak. Doctors say her quick recovery was due to the fact she had no underlying health conditions apart from mild bronchitis. Frontman Jim Cuddy kicked off a series of live online performances being put on by the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. With so many artists forced to cancel shows and gigs, the NAC is providing $100,000 to pay Canadian artists for live online performance. It's taking applications from those who want to deliver those performances between 45 and 60 minutes between now and March 31st. While most of us are left to exercise alone in Spain, quarantined residents of an entire apartment complex exercise together at a safe distance on their balconies, following the lead from a fitness instructor perched on a nearby rooftop. If you're looking for a fine art fix, the Royal Ontario Museum, the Art Gallery of Ontario and the Batashu Museum in Toronto all have online components. More than 45,000 of the ROM's objects can be viewed on its website rather than in person, and the AGO's entire collection is available online. Bata's shoes can be viewed up close and in 3D in its All About Shoes online exhibit. With all the current preoccupation with isolation, let's remember the man who decades ago earned a world record as the most isolated human being. Astronaut Al Warden, the command module pilot on the Apollo 15 lunar landing, earned that title because he was 2,235 miles away from anyone else while his crewmates roamed the lunar surface. Al Warden died Wednesday in Texas at the age of 88. He spent more than 295 hours in space. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Life has changed as we confront COVID-19, and while the hope is that many aspects return to pre-pandemic norms, the prediction is that this event will mark a turning point in transforming our lifestyles. I talked with futurist Richard Warzel. 
Let's start with the immediate concern, which is our health. A switchover or a component of virtual health was already in the works, but how will the pandemic accelerate that? Well, it'll do it in a couple of different ways. First of all, it's going to change attitudes towards health and government-sponsored health, both here and in the United States. Here, we've kind of been drifting into a conversation of maybe it's better to have some public, some private. Maybe it's better to have ways. That's going to change because people are are now going to say, wait a minute, this is too, my health is is too important to leave to market forces. It's got to be government run. On the states, I think it's going to fuel the debate on health care, and I think it's going to change attitudes there enough to get some sort of universal health care possibly funded through the private sector, possibly with a public option, but it's going to change attitudes on health care. It's going to change the way we fund and uh, promote medical and scientific research. People are going to say, where did this come from and what do we do to stop it? Because the reality is that viruses like this are becoming more uh, frequent. So people are going to say, we have to be prepared for this. And interestingly, researchers and epidemiologists have been saying this for decades, and nobody's paid attention. I mean, there are popular movies about this, but the amount of money spent on one of those popular movies is greater than the budget for researchers for you know, virtually the entire world. Hopefully that's going to change. One of the areas in healthcare where we are in a manpower crisis is caregiving. What about robot companions. Yes, that that is going to happen, um, but it's not going to be so much replacing as augmenting human caregivers, um, both in terms of high-skilled doctors, for example, oncologists, who will be augmented by artificial intelligence and will be able to do their jobs better because they have these tools available to them, down to, as you say, robot companions. These computer companions or robot companions are also going to be able to monitor the health of individuals. Telecommuting. A lot of people are working from home. How many of them will continue to do that from home? Well, a lot more, and there are going to be a lot of reasons for that. First of all, we're now discovering how valuable that can be, and we're discovering how clumsy the tools that we currently have are. There are, are, there's going to be a lot of uh, effort and a race to put together tools that make telework much easier and more effective that will allow people more flexibility. And by the way, will allow employers more flexibility because they'll be able to tap a much broader employment base. So telework is going to come into its own as a result of this. This is really the coming out party for, for telework. Is this going to bring back the family dinner? Uh, no, actually, I tend to think not. I mean, if, if people are, are spending more time uh, in virtual or in virtual, let's call it virtual isolation, um, then that's going to extend to the dinner table. I mean, I, I don't see that just because people are having to spend time at home, if they were sitting and looking at their smartphones while they were eating dinner before, I don't see that changing just because they can't go out. So, I No, I, I don't see a move away from the isolation that we've been moving towards just because of this. Maybe, I, maybe, sorry, maybe people will appreciate family more than they did before because it's more, it's seen to be more perilous. That might help. I'm hoping you're wrong on that one. And what about home cooking? 
Well, I think people are rediscovering it. All of a sudden, instead of saying, well, I need this particular brand of Italian cheese and I need these olives and I need that, um, you're having to figure out, well, what can I do with what I've got? And that is where cooking comes in. You know, learning how to make a tasty meal from what you've got is becomes much more important, and people are finding it as, may rediscover the joy of cooking. I think that's a good thing. We see trends leading to more isolation, but we're social animals. We are. Is is that good for us that more people are going to be working in isolation and also enjoying themselves in isolation? I don't see a problem with enjoying yourself in isolation. People have, uh, throughout history, have sought isolation for meditation, for reflection, for just to let themselves breathe and get away from other people. I do see uh, danger in people moving towards isolation when they're not seeking it, when being, being isolated as opposed to seeking isolation, because that's how you create alienation. You create distance between people. And I see that as an unhealthy thing, and unfortunately, we have been trending that way. And by the way, the same applies to uh, nation states. Anything else you want to leave us with? We've been moving towards, gradually drifting towards, uh, or being pushed towards, a world where contingent and perilous work is is rising. The gig economy is eroding uh, worker uh, stability, and that is it. People are going to come are getting indignant about this in this environment when they see the consequences in a crisis. So there's going to be a move towards more worker protection, a move against basically using uh, contract workers and throwing them away. Employers, particularly large corporations, are going to be the target for a lot of anger out of this. And uh, particularly those that have pissed away the, the profits of the last 10 years in executive bonuses, share buybacks, and big dividend hikes, particularly if a company needs a bailout, they're going to have to explain what they did with all the profits that they made, and they're probably going to have to, uh, amend, have to mend their ways and promise not to do these things before. And I have hope that Canada will move towards community rather to- than towards divisiveness. I think there's going to be real, real problems in the States. Richard Wurzel, thanks so much for your thoughts. Appreciate it very much. My pleasure. That was futurist Richard Wurzel. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. What will Canadians need and want in the years to come? Where and how will we live? Pollster Daryl Bricker looked at those questions through the lens of demographics. And the Zoomer generation is at the center of the answers. We have a prejudice in our society. It's the last remaining prejudice I think that's acceptable, and that's ageism. And we, and particularly in the communications industry and the advertising industry, it very much exists. It, you know, it's not because they dislike old people. It's just that the older people, it's just that the entire marketing industry has basically been built since the end of the Second World War around satisfying the needs of younger people. And, you know, if you look back from 1945 through to fairly recently, it was probably a pretty good bet to make. But when, if you start looking at the data today, it's changed very differently. What is the key demographic in society in your... There's a whole bunch, but I think the one that's most appropriate for, for this, uh, this particular uh, aspect is the, uh, is the median age of a Canadian. So the median age is the age that's right in the middle. Half the population's older and half the population's younger. We think it's a really you know, low number, but actually the number is 41. 
There are more people, and it's the first time in Canadian history, and 2016 was the first time it happened, there are now more people 65 years of age or older than they are under the age of 15. First time that's ever happened. And this gap is continuing to grow. We think that Canada has this huge birth rate and then we're having lots of kids, and that's basically not happening. Most of the population growth, and the Canadian population still continues to grow about 1% a year, is from people not dying. Uh, We're getting very, very good at keeping people alive. We're not so good at making new people. Why do marketers and people who, why are they chasing younger people? Because they have this view that younger younger people have more discretionary spending, uh, that they're in the part of their lives in in which you buy a lot of things. And they also believe that there's going to be this huge transfer of wealth from older people to younger people as we go through time and space. All of those things are not happening. So young people may have discretionary spending, but they don't have nearly as much as their parents did. Uh, and they certainly don't, uh, we, particularly when we compare them to boomers, they certainly don't have that. And when you're looking at generational wealth transfer, the truth is that most of the people who were relying on to transfer that wealth are spending it themselves in their own lifetimes, and they're not going away as fast as a lot of people assumed they would. Well, exactly. Um, the biggest fear among a lot of people is that they will outlive their money. And it's it's a pretty interesting idea. I mean, if you think back to, say, for example, the 1920s, the average Canadian lived to the age of 57. That was it. 57, you were done. Today, the average Canadian lives to the age of around 81. Now, women still outlive men a little bit by about five years, but the average Canadian is living to much older. They're not departing this mortal coil. They're holding on to the money they have. Older people have all the great houses, they had all the good jobs, they have all the good pensions, and they have all the money. So my question to marketers is, why haven't you figured that out? Some companies are actually starting to figure it out. Uh, You know, the gray wave, um, this idea that there's this older population that we may be marketing to, but they still have this view that this is a specialty audience. It's actually not a specialty audience, it's the mainstream. And you mentioned the houses, A lot of people think, okay, uh, you know, talk about downsizing, though we do see those funny commercials for reverse mortgages, you know, where the the couple in the fab, the older couple in the fabulous house said, here comes that real estate agent again, and they, you know, stick the sprinkler on. It's probably a good idea. And, And in fact, a lot of people are doing exactly that. The truth is that what most older people do is they do not move. They do not downsize. There is a segment that does, and it's not insignificant, but the the majority ages in place. They stay where they are. And the reason that they do is they like their homes. They like their neighborhoods. They like their access to friends and family. They like the access to services, particularly in the city, and they don't want to leave them behind. So this idea that, uh, you know, what's going to happen is you, you know, hit 65, 66, you retire, you sell your house, you move to, uh, you know, uh, a senior's facility. People don't move to senior facilities until they're very close to the end of their lives. Most people age in place. And this is even people who uh, become single, who are single women and single men. They, they tend to stay right in their family homes. Stability is a real icon, or I call them, uh, you know, symbols in in the book for uh, people who are in in the baby boomer generation. Okay, Daryl Bricker, thanks so much. Thanks, Libby. That was Daryl Bricker. His new book is titled Next. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me, and be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. 
Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.